Welcome to part three of the Jake Oakleman story. Stay tuned for another piece of the puzzle, putting it all together, quite the picture it is. But before we get to Jay, we are supported by listeners and businesses like you. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. Like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience Incorporated, the creators of NeuroGuide, the premier EEG assessment and training software whose demo version can be downloaded from the link here. Hey, attend ANI's pre-conference workshop at the ISNR 2022 conference Wednesday, July 27th, between 8 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. The workshop will concentrate on assessment and protocol preparation using the Neuro Navigator and the Symptom Checklist, which includes cerebellar ROIs and uses SW Loretta for more precise targeting and cross-frequency coupling. Training will be introduced and hey, if you want a coupon code, email Pete at Neuronoodle.com. I'll hook you up. Learn more at AppliedNeuroscience.com slash Hey, thanks to our silver supporters, Mary Tracy's awesome QEG training program at EEGstrategies.com and Mind Media's Nexus EEG Amplifier. Welcome aboard, Erwin. They're at MindMedia.com. So, so Jay, we... Uh, we left off somewhere around 1996, 2000, somewhere in there. What uh, what was going on? The certification story uh, wrapped up in that era. Uh, certification board uh, pulling my Yanking certificate number it. one and then handing it back to me after they got their mess straightened out. Um, but, you know, in that same era, in my other life, my avocation, environmental work, um, there was other stuff going on. Um, uh, a refinery uh, had to have an expansion. Uh, when they're going for permits and expansion, uh, they can usually expect community opposition. It's a refinery and uh, their neighbors you, are always you are, upset. You are the some... opposition. Well, uh, in, in this circumstance, I negotiated a settlement with them uh, that updated the fence line monitoring system to modern more modern technology. Uh, we, we had serials number one, two, three, and four of the laser uh, off production. Uh, it's, it was the first of its kind of a system in the world. And at that point, the uh, infrared monitors were older. Um, they were actually, they had a spinning disc with slits in it, and it would pulse the light beam going through it. Um, you know, a mechanical, optical thing, the mechanics wear out and it's suboptimal. And they yeah. were now solid state instruments that didn't have squirrels in a cage, basically, inside yeah. of them. So um, we wanted those updated. Um, we wanted the agreement for public access to the data online. Um, you know, there there were updates to that. And for the refinery, there were things that we wanted them to do to improve the quality of the uh, emissions. So I negotiated a settlement for they had to do all of these things. And then we would step aside and send a note that said, well, the, the refinery uh, update to modern technology is something that we don't oppose. Um, we got uh, a, a pretty good sized settlement for the communities, $100,000 uh, to each of the two communities on an annual basis. 
and 100000 to the school district that surrounds the refinery. You know, financial benefit and environmental benefit. And, and so uh, we, there, there were still a handful of people that opposed, but it basically didn't have the, the, the normal uh, furor that you'd run into in a, in a hearing. People that were upset that I did that. But if you don't do anything that people are upset about, you wouldn't do anything at all. So right, right, um, right. The, the other environmental thing that was happening about that time is uh, next to the town of Crockett, where I lived, uh, there was actually a smelter uh, with the world's tallest smokestack. And they blew that stack in the late 60s. But the smelter itself uh, created slag. Now, they produced gold. They produced lead for World War II. Um, they, they, they were around since the 1800s. Um, Asarco was the owner of it. Um, and uh, they, they basically uh, shut it down, uh, handed the company over to another company to avoid the liability of the cleanup. And there's a litigation and they, they put you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars into a trust fund for the state of California State Lands Commission held that funding. Well, the refinery for its rebuild, the update for the refinery, that, you know, they're going to be bringing in gigantic parts that are already fabricated. They have to have a laydown yard, a spot to put all the pipes that they're going to end up hooking together. Uh, parking for the workers. Uh, they needed land to park all that stuff on. And the slag area from that old smelter was toxic as shit. You can't be on that stuff. I mean, it's, it's lead and arsenic, and, uh, cadmium. And, you know, it's, it's, it is yeah. toxic. And there's an acid pit. You know, the last thing you want to do is be parking something that's metal on top of an acid pit. You know, so um, th they needed to use that land and the State Lands Commission and the Department of Toxic Substance Control in California came in uh, with the idea probably planted by CS Lands, which is uh, Philip 66 Land Holding Company. They needed to asphalt over top. Now, they said it was a cleanup. Uh, you look at the stats on it, 10% of the water going through that slag which is the largest source of lead and arsenic for the Bay Area. I mean, it's, it's, it's a real bad toxic source. There's groundwater going through it, but rainwater was less than 10% of the problem. And at the time, I told them, you know, this is crazy. You're really not solving the problem. You're giving the refinery a parking lot. You're going to be back here uh, to do a better cleanup at some point because this is not really a cleanup. It's just again, providing access to the refinery to their land. It was an ill-conceived uh, remediation. And uh, sure enough, they had to come back. Uh, in fact, they're back now, right now, uh, talking about putting in a seawall made out of steel and salt water on one side and acid on the other side. How long do you think steel is going to last when it's basically set in a battery? You know, electrolysis... <laughs> And acid is going to eat this thing up. So the seawall they're designing is, it's a hundred year seawall. Uh, they're going to come back every five years and replace 5% of it. I'm sorry, but this is a 10,000 year problem. And you've got a hundred year fix and, and not enough money to actually do it right. The community actually had a better fix. There's a small piece of the 66 acres of toxicity. That's the acid pit. 
that has to come out because acid makes heavy metals leach out of the out of the slag. So the 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 mobilization of the metals that are toxifying the bay is because of that acidity and the groundwater. And uh, they're talking about punching five wells and pumping water out, but it's the wells are right in the toxicity. So everything they pump out is going to be groundwater and toxicity, and it has to be treated. Our proposal is to back that up about 100 yards outside of the toxic area and dig an entire French drain trench, seal the downslope wall of it, and pump clean groundwater past the site. Also to remove the acid pit area. Um, they're, they're basically talking about uh, uh, some wells to treat the water that are in it, that's in it and in a seawall. And again, we've, we've suggested that was inadequate. They just offered millions of dollars to communities to have their own experts evaluate projects. And uh, that's what we're about to do. Uh, they're, they're just coming up with the mechanisms to offer the grants to communities to end up assessing uh, alternatives. My son's a geologist. We stumbled on a gigantic rock, a hundred and something pounds, kind of greeny, bluey color and um, heavily weathered on the outside of the rock. But it didn't really look like any other rock in the area. And so he grabbed it, drilled some out, which was very difficult. Uh, it melted almost immediately, so it was probably very high in lead. And um, he sent it to a lab, and it's full of rare earths and arsenic and lead. And so outside of the area that they're talking about cleanup, there's lots of this stuff. Back when the slag was uh, slag, it was it had to be disposed of, and it was just scattered all over the place. Yeah. The oil, oil company back in the late 1800s, needed to keep the dust down so they sprayed oil on everything so it's a mixture of kind of bunker crude nasty oil and slag buried 40 something feet deep it's a and it's concretized so it's it's almost like uh solid asphalt or solid concrete it's uh, anyway uh, that cleanup is going to end up being a big one because of sea level rise which is going to overtop the asphalt cap that they have on the top of it. I do that stuff for fun uh, in between the EEG stuff. So in about the 2000 era, the first go round of that cleanup was happening and the refinery update was happening and the fence line monitoring system, which was still the only one like it in the world. Now, much more recently, the Air Quality Management District brought in international experts and UCLA, USC, the state's uh, Air Resources Board, um, the, the various quality management districts, and they, they basically got advice as to what the best technology for monitoring refineries was. The, the answer was the system that we developed now 30 years ago. At the time, they said it was crazy by using physics, a laser to detect the chemistry, you know, just get a, get a gas analyzer. Mm -hmm. Well, their method was to have a little shed on the fence line and it has a pump in it, sucks air through a hole in the wall. It goes through a gas analyzer and tells you what's coming through that hole. Well, the pollution has to hit that little hole in the wall. Uh, we've got a kilometer long beam. If it breaks the beam, we tell you what's in it. So, you know, it, it's a high tech uh, uh, approach that the people that were into chemistry, not physics, really did not understand 30 years ago. 
And at this point, it, it's uh, mandated for every refinery in California has had to build defense line monitoring systems using the laser system that we developed at that refinery next to Crockett that dumped all the toxic waste on us that saved my life. Yeah. Because of you. <laughs> well, there, it wasn't just me, but uh, I, I, I did go to the State Lands Commission and challenge their, uh, their land use permit um, uh, to get what was called a good neighbor agreement. You know, when I said that they needed a good neighbor agreement, the, the Commissioner Clark, who was up on up on the dais, you know, looking down over his glasses, down in his yeah. nose, and, and and he said, "Well, what do you mean a good neighbor agreement?" I said, "Well, uh, you don't dump your garbage over the fence, and I won't shoot your dog." You know, that's a good neighbor agreement. You know, it's yeah. a, a pretty tough one, but you know they're polluting, and you know we're we're not going to cause problems for them if they quit polluting us. Commissioner Clark was rolling his eyes and looking at his watch, and yeah, you know, I was going down in flames. Yeah, you know, ask him to hold off on the land use permit until they come up with the agreement. The head of the refinery stood up and said, "You don't have the right to hold up our land use permit." Clark's nostrils flared; his pupils got big. Down comes the gavel. Boom! These hearings are held in abeyance until you come back with a good neighbor agreement. Chaos ensued. Um, the lawyers for the refinery were bumping into each other and the refinery people. It looked like the Keystone cops over there, you know, yeah. it's just, uh, and finally their lawyers come over and say, the communities are unincorporated townships. There is no government entity. Who the hell do we negotiate with? And I said, well, me, you know, <laughs> so, uh, a couple of weeks from now, let's meet with the refinery manager. And they fired that manager. Uh, well, they transferred him. They don't fire yeah. him. They transfer yeah. him out. We got a real smooth operator from Los Angeles, and uh, he came up to do the negotiations. And I met with him uh, briefly uh, uh, just to scope out what we were going to be talking about, not to do any direct negotiations, but just, you know, what's the, what's the general area that's going to be discussed? I, I went back home, and the phone rings. And the, uh, the, they said, we're having a meeting down at the, at the community center. We'd like you to, to pop in. So I go down and there's a meeting already in progress. And I walk in and everybody looks at me. And uh, I, I'm not even sitting at the table. And they said, we hear you're, re you're negotiating with the refinery. Uh, is that true? And I said, yes. Um, you know, me, one other person from town, from Rodeo, the town over, met with them today to talk about kind of the things that the negotiation would cover. They said, what gives you the right to negotiate on our behalf? I said, well, nothing does. Why don't you do it? And I turned and left. It was a hostile meeting and it wasn't going to yeah. go well anyway. So I figured, let, let, let them see the chaos of them trying to do it. And they created a committee. Uh, and pretty soon the head of the committee decided that they needed a negotiator. So they appointed me. <laughs> so, so you uh, came back in the uh, picture. Came back around. There's not too many people that can play, you know, poker with the big boys and, and bluff, you know, and, yeah, yeah. And, and that's me. I've negotiated with, uh, with big entities previously and uh, uh, received a, a $300 million settlement for the town of 3,000 people. So I, 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 know, so I know how to play hardball when needed. Yeah, the negotiations proceeded. Uh, the good neighbor agreement got all sorts of really fabulous things, an extension of the freeway. Uh, down to the local uh, local highway so that the trucks from the refinery didn't have to go through either of the two towns to get out of the freeway, which gets all sorts of 
heavy duty trucks hauling through town, you know, traffic problems, pollution problems and so forth. And they just out of the refinery right up onto the freeway. That cost them, what, eight and a half million dollars to do a little freeway extension, uh, planting uh, visual tree barriers to kind of cut down on how nasty the refinery looked from the town. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, bike paths. I mean, the, there was a little bit of everything in this agreement, uh, including the fence line monitoring system, uh, which which we ended up uh, having built. So uh, in, in that era, there was a lot of environmental stuff going on. Yeah. But in... In 2000, in the EG realm of me, my vocation, not my avocation, mm-hmm. um, uh, 2000 was the Y2K year. If you remember the, the, yeah. the horror of Y2K, everybody was worried that the world's computers were all going to go belly up from, you know, having Yeah, what happened with the EG world? Yeah, that's interesting. Well, you know, the Spectrum 32 was the first QEG machine that uh, was a... Uh, we had a bunch of them in the lab, and uh, they had a Y2K problem. Uh, you would punch in the person's date of birth, and the two-digit year was suddenly not going to give you the right answer. They had uh, been busted by the FDA because they had put discriminants into their software without it being approved by the FDA. The amplifier, the, all of that was already approved. They had a 510K for sale of it as a medical device, an EG, QEG device. But the discriminants were a diagnostic metric. You know, are you uh, bipolar or unipolar? Are you uh, alcoholic or not? And the, those kinds of discriminants were in it. And um, they, they, they hadn't gotten permission. So uh, Spectrum 32 was basically uh, shut down by the FDA. Uh, they had already sold so many of them that they didn't think they would get enough more sales so they basically just paid their million dollar fine, but they couldn't interact with anybody who owned a device. So if you knew a Y2K problem was there and you called their office, they could not speak to you. Um, they had an FDA officer in their office to make sure that they weren't interacting about the devices that had been sold even. So uh, the Spectrum 32 Y2K problem basically turned all of those $165,000 devices into boat anchors or whatever, landfill fill, or, you know, parts salvaging from, you know, somewhere in Indonesia. God knows where all of them went, but they, they became worthless. Uh, 2000 was also uh, a year I was president of ISNR. Uh, we held the meeting in Monterey, uh, California, uh, right on the wharf. Fa- fabulous meeting. Um, Carl Prebram uh, did a nice little talk. Um, I actually hired some friends of mine who uh, had a band uh, to play a soft set for the uh, kind of the in- intro gathering, which was you know, cocktail party music. And then we rented the Monterey Bay Aquarium for the party. <laughs> Linda Mason and Tom Brownback got married in front of the shark tank at the party. We, we threw a hell of a party. Uh, but they rocked out their, um, you know, their rock band basically, but they, they're old pros. They could play whatever. So right. Yuri Kropotov was at the meeting. Uh, there were a lot of Europeans at the meeting and it was a joint meeting with ECNS, EG and clinical neuroscience society. And their planner, uh, thought that this was such a good meeting the such a good science that would end up, everybody would want to come 
and they were going to have so many people attend that didn't normally attend that they were planning for this gigantic attendance. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's a pipe dream, you know? So uh, planner, having planned a whole bunch of meetings, you realize there's a cut down date coming. And at that cut down date, you have to tell them, okay, cut my order for food in half or cut it down by 10% or 20% or whatever. I'm telling their planner, you, you don't have enough, uh, people and and you're going to end up bankrupting your organization by guaranteeing all this food and beverage that you can't really consume you know give us a, a cut down figure never happened so on my own volition i cut their order in half and it still was too much um so at the meeting i basically said well listen i will buy back uh 15, 20% of what you have ordered, and I'll give it away to the Europeans at the meeting as a luncheon. So I invited all the Europeans to a free lunch. Now, we all know there's no such thing as a free lunch. So uh, uh, in Europe, maybe. Yeah, well, I, I brought them all <laughs> in and sat them all down, and I joined them. At, they had a couple of gigantic round tables, you know, that, um, a couple of 12 person tables, and and uh, they they brought in you know really good feed. I mean it, it was it was top notch uh, uh, the feed for a lunch and and plated you know served and plated. I said you know we're interested in European maybe as a chapter of the society, but we're not looking for you to be puppets. And I'm not going to be here for your meeting. I'm going to leave, but I'm going to come back in 45 minutes to an hour and see what's going on. If you're yelling at each other, we don't want a European chapter. And if you're if you've got a plan of kind of how you want to go forward with this and everything, then we can talk. So I got up and left. Uh, about an hour, I came back. They had elected Yuri as the president and uh, Jonelle Villar as the vice president and uh, Patricia Billinghausen uh, as the secretary treasurer. You know, they say we you know we want to go ahead with this, and I said, well, <laughs> okay. They said, well, what do we do? I said, well. You know, my suggestion for the first thing you do is write a letter indicating your intention to be a chapter of the society and asking for some seed funding to help you set up local banking accounts and stuff in Europe. And, you know, there was a brand new law about transnational corporations in Europe. Um, it, you can't set it up as um, a Swiss society. It'll be a Swiss society. If it's a German society, it's a German I mean, if it's a transnational European society, then all the countries can can buy in. So set up an, a corporate entity uh, in Europe so you can get a bank account and, you know, ask for some seed funding to help set that up. And uh, so that's what they did. It took them three years to finally get the lawyers to figure out exactly how to do it uh, because it was a brand new thing. I mean, just because it's permitted doesn't mean the lawyer knows what the hell to do to make it. Three years later, the society and their lack of wisdom basically cut off the funding. A couple thousand a year is a little bit of nothing, really. Uh, and it was what they needed to basically keep the lawyers moving. They, they just got the incorporation and the bank account and the, the society here in the U.S. basically cut them off. Now, last I knew, you feed your kids until they're big enough to be on their own and you don't starve them. Uh, when they're infants, 
that was basically a really stupid move. But they were together enough at that point that they started their own society, the Society for Applied Neuroscience, SAN. That's still a going entity. They have meetings every year. That started in the uh, Monterey Conference. Uh, 2001, uh, in, in Arizona, uh, we, we had Wolfgang Klemisch invited, but he couldn't come from Salzburg. He sent Michael Doppelmeyer, and uh, Michael uh, learned about neurofeedback and went back and contaminated the lab with a virus of neurofeedback. The, the, the idea that you could actually train somebody to operantly shift their brain pattern. Uh, Klemisch picked him up at, the, at Frankfurt at the airport on an international flight and drove back to Salzburg. On the drive back, uh, they, they basically came up with three years of research using neurofeedback uh, to manipulate brain states. They'd already identified slow alpha and poor memory function, uh, poor somatic and declarative memory, fast alpha would better. They basically took some slow alpha people, sped up their alpha, and retested their memory. Instead of a correlational study, it's now seen as a causal relationship. So, uh, but we, we basically introduced them to the idea of neurofeedback and, and they ran with it. Uh, in 2005, uh, they published the first study on SMR and sleep, uh, you know, insomnia, basically. The SMR can end up helping with people that have street level insomnia with simply 10 sessions. Now they tried it, uh, and that was replicated in Graz, Austria, Hirschheller's lab. But they tried it on some severe insomniacs uh, back in Salzburg and found that 10 sessions was inadequate. Uh, we actually replicated the experimental group here at Alliance University. Diego Garcia Rodriguez uh, did his PhD dissertation. At that point, uh, received his doctorate uh, by uh, uh, doing uh, 24 training sessions with severe insomniacs and found good results. So. SMR helps with insomnia. It's very well established at this point with very good structured control studies and uh, with an adequate dose, it's work, it works with even severe insomnia. 2000, you brought up Yuri. He, he got the Russian database going, Yep. right? Okay. When did these comparative databases start? From day one or like did well, Yuri, when, when did all this... Yuri's yeah. database um, actually was in progress in 2000. They were starting to collect data. But the thing is, if you collect ERP data, and, and Yuri's a big ERP guy, he, they do 100 trials. You, you computer average the response to, to 100 stimuli. And uh, the EG randomizes out, and the ERP averages up. And the thing is, you have to have 100 epochs uh, that you're analyzing and because when you flash something on a screen there's quite often a blink as a response that epoch is gone because there's an eye blink in the middle of it you can't get rid of and you know so 100 repetitions and you only have 40 of them it's not really an adequate stable amount to end up having a database with norms so uh, when Yuri and I lectured together in 2001 in, in Cascais, Portugal, just outside of Lisbon on the coast, I asked him uh, the second day of our lecture together, or, you know, during one of the breaks, are you using ICA to de-artifact eye movements? And he said, oh, we tried PCA and it just doesn't work. I said, well, read this paper, Schwartz Computational, it's 
Scott McKegg's paper on, on ICA Infomax, which it was a fairly new form of ICA. I handed him the paper and in his own time, he read it. Two weeks after that meeting, I got his software with the ICA implemented in it already. And he basically said, this allows us, this works. This allows us to get 90 plus repetitions out of 100 repetitions. And the norms now work. ICA de-artifacting made his database actually work, uh, the ERP portion especially. But it, uh, the, the entire database was processed with the with the uh, Infomax uh, algorithm to clean the data. It it, it ended up uh, working very well at that point. Um, so so in two thousand, Jay, sorry, what what database? When did QEEG become a? Because you had to have databases to compare it to. If it, if the Russian one was in two thousand, like what was going on in the states during your tenure? Like what was going on? Well, the the NX link database was built into the it was built into the uh, Spectrum 32, and that was uh, available obviously as the first QEG machine. Um, QSI in Canada came out with a, a model shortly thereafter, associated with um, uh, Harvard. Uh, Frank Duffy was involved with the QSI, but they miscalibrated the QSI, which is a common mistake. Uh, Barry Sturman's Neuro Navigator was miscalibrated the same way. It's an engineering error, uh, conceptual error um, in the engineer. If you're, if you're not familiar with EEG, it, it's easy to make that mistake. So it's, it's been, it's, it's, that mistake's been done before. It'll be done again, I'm sure. We are supported by listeners and businesses just like you, like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience Incorporated. The creators of NeuroGuide, the premier EEG assessment and training software whose demo version can be downloaded from the link here. Hey, attend ANI's pre-conference workshop at the ISNR 2022 conference Wednesday, July 27th, between 8 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. The workshop will concentrate on assessment and protocol preparation using the Neuro Navigator and the Symptom Checklist, which includes cerebellar ROIs and uses SW Loretta for more precise targeting and cross-frequency coupling. Training will be introduced. And hey, if you want a coupon code, email Pete at neuronoodle.com. I'll hook you up. Learn more at appliedneuroscience.com slash neuroguide. Um, so each product had their own database? Like um, uh, Duffy had a database. Uh, NX Link was Roy John's uh, database. In that same general time frame, uh, Bob Thatcher came up with his database uh, based on the same amplifier as Roy John's database, uh, the Massachusetts AMP. And uh, the Massachusetts AMP for its era was considered kind of a, a gold standard. It was a very good uh, AMP of its type, but it had a, a frequency response that didn't really go all the way up into the higher frequencies. It rolled off. Roy John quit analyzing data at 25 cycles a second because that's where the roll off was very steep. Uh, Bob Thatcher amplified up all the way up to 30 Hertz it's a 40% loss in signal, uh, and you have to multiply up to get um, your, your signal back up to the level of the analysis. So you have to linearize it, um, uh, but you're also amplifying noise. So it had a 12% overestimation in the low 20s, and uh, at that point it plummeted 
and uh, again with a correction multiplying factor, uh, they boosted the signal up to 30. But they don't, you know, the database didn't go above 30 hertz because there wasn't data above that. Uh, the, it had lost at 30 hertz uh, enough data. At 40 hertz, there was 99% of the data was gone. So uh, they, they basically focused on data from uh, 1 to 30 uh, in, in their database. Yuri went to 45 hertz in his database. Um, I mean, 50 is a big signal in Europe. Uh, like 60 is in the U.S. Uh, so uh, they went up to 45 and uh, their, their filter for the 50 hertz chopped it at that point. And, the, um, and he, he was the first database that ended up using the modern computational neuroscience tools of ICA for data cleaning. And although that's controversial within the neurofeedback world because of vendor... Uh, There's uh, controversy neuro in the neurofeedback field, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, the neuroscience world, ICA is used ubiquitously. It's hard to find a publication in, in a, a, a national journal that doesn't use ICA to clean the data. I mean, it really is. It's very hard. I, I've seen posts on uh, listservs where uh, the, they were saying if I say it was used, there'd be no phase reset uh, data because phase is randomized by the ICA, which is it, not randomized. It was just a false statement about it. Uh, and the paper that they were saying was a good paper, you go to page six, the first step on DR facting was ICA. So, you know, if this is a good paper, how do they get good phase data out of ICA cleanup, you know? So, but that paper was pulled off that listserv very quickly conflicted with what they wanted to say with what the science was saying. But uh, Richard Davidson's lab is the source of that paper and uh, his lab does ICA all the time. I, I, I know Richard's lab. So when I saw that it was his paper, I realized this has got to probably have ICA being done. Flip to the methodology section. The rest of the neurofeedback, excuse me, the rest of the neuroscience world doesn't consider ICA a controversy. Um, there's a, a current uh, a paper uh, from March this year uh, that uh, summarized what you need to do to publish about EEG, ERP, and MEG. And uh, uh, that paper basically talks about ICA. Uh, says there's a few different forms. In order for uh, people to be able to replicate what you do, you have to specify not just which kind of ICA you use. There's FAST ICA, Infomax, and Amica as the three primary forms, um, but you have to specify which version of the software so somebody can replicate your data uh, precisely. But there's no warning that it damages your signal. There's nothing such as that. It's a routine uh, uh, piece of, of uh, data processing. And in that paper, they also quote Nunez saying that Laplacian remontaging is, is the best way to look at AG and spectra and coherence which isn't exactly agreed to uh, by uh, everybody who owns a database. If you don't like to publish neuroscience, and this is a, the standards paper for what you have to do to publish, uh, that's an international consortium of major, major laboratories, including Schwartz Computational. But uh, Salzburg's lab, I mean, international labs all over the world, this is their summary uh, advisory paper. If you disagree with it, there's methods in science for disagreement. You write a letter to the editor complaining about something in the paper, 
and uh, your, your, you know, detail what your complaint is, and uh, the, the author will have a chance to respond. Um, but, you know, if you want to go up against a panel of people like publish this one, you better have your ducks in a row because you're going to look like a freaking idiot if you don't. And um, I seriously doubt that anybody's going to challenge that paper. It's too solid, and the arguments against it are too parochial. Neuroscience marches on. If you go into a box canyon and you disagree with everybody marching by, pretty well everybody is going to go by and you're going to be left there by yourself. So I would hope that people follow uh, the entire world of neuroscience. Neurofeedback shouldn't be uh, dissociated from the world of neuroscience. So in 2000, Jay, you're president of the ISNR and uh, you got the Europeans going over there. Did anything, and we talked about the databases, and this is your story. I'm just, did something happen that I'm trying to figure out, like uh, Moore's Law, the computer processing power of a chip doubles every every 18 months. Did, is there some type of number like that with a EEG amplifier that you've seen the adoption rate take off, or did anything happen? It, with the databases grow? Anything to, to expand Amps the got pie? cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Amps got cheaper. I mean, from uh, 1980s, 90s, 165,000, you can find an amplifier, you know, 10 grand or less. That's like they're disposable. You know? <laughs> it's crazy how cheap things have gotten. Uh, and the quality of the amplifiers is also, at one point, uh, uh, you could get a cheap little neurofeedback amp uh, with an 8-bit processor in it. And that's not enough resolution to give you the size of the EEG without clipping, or and you have to uh, step up or down the size of the EEG to match that 8-bit ability to describe the size of the EEG. And you know, some people went up to 12 bits, and they thought that was really you know, a good step up. You know, it's, it is a good step up, but it's not quite adequate for EEG. Still, there were people that were doing calculations and. They said 14-bit or better is needed to end up looking at the size of the EG without uh, uh, distortion. And, you know, goodness, now if you get, if you don't have a 64-bit or better, you you know, what, what the hell is going on, you know? So um, computer software and hardware has improved to the point where uh, um, the pocket-sized brainwave analyzer that we built from op amps is now the instrumentation amp on a single chip designing and developing piece of cake nowadays. You don't have any of the kinds of difficulties that you had when you had to construct your own amplifier a piece at a time out of tinker toys. You know? You've been in a bunch of businesses or a number of businesses and different partners and whatnot. Did any of them start in that time period or? <laughs> we, we started out with uh, spectral data systems in, in the 70s. Uh, when we came out, uh, Spectral Data Systems was Larry Woodard and myself. And at one point, uh, actually, the the name of it uh, uh, became Spectral Data Systems. It was um, Group or Biosabernic uh, uh, Institute. That was it. And uh, Jim Hart was part of it. Uh, but uh, we we had difficulties with that. And so we dissolved the company. And uh, it became Spectral Data Systems. Uh, Larry Woodard and I uh, ended up having that uh, together. And, it, you know, it, 
a little tiny company. We made a temperature machine uh, sensitive to one ten thousandth of degree change per second using the derivative of temperature, as well as an absolute value on a digital display. Uh, so you could train temperature very sensitively. Um, and there's nothing quite like that at this point. Then we had a two-channel EMG device all, already FDA registered as a, as a therapeutic uh, EMG. You have to have a two-channel EMG to do flexor extensor pairs. And if you're not training the flexor to tense and the extensor to relax at the same time, all you get is rigidity and tension. So to actually train motion back to somebody, you have to have a two-channel EMG. And uh, it was a very good little machine. Uh, then the Poxized Brainwave Analyzer, and then I got a job um, at the EG lab because I realized that selling into a niche market is a good way to end up with a small fortune from a large one. And the EG lab just basically took off. Um, you know, I did a bunch of traveling around training people how to hook up EGs better uh, in the upper Midwest. Um, and then finally, uh, uh, didn't want to do road work anymore and, and uh, resided in the lab in San Francisco forever. A hundred okay. plus EGs a day kind of streaming by. Okay. Uh, but in 2000 era, uh, we had a couple of different companies. Uh, Dr. Miranda was the neurologist who we were working with. Jason Rowe uh, was a tech. He's an Apple uh, uh, consultant, basically, uh, at this point. Uh, in Florida, that kind of broke up at at, at one point. But uh, we we had offices in uh, Beverly Hills, uh, in between the Ferrari and the Lexus dealership. It's uh, four blocks up off of Rodeo Drive. Um, is a, a fancy neighborhood. Um, I, I'm a jeans and t-shirt kind of guy. The bums on the street there had blazers, you know. So I looked like I was a, a not, an, un, an untouchable, you know. So. It was an interesting practice. We had uh, the industry insurance, uh, which is Screen Actors Guild, Writers Guild, Directors Guild. Um, and uh, they all they have to do is sign. If you're listed with them, they can come straight to you. They don't have to have a referral through a doctor or anything like that. So mm -hmm. uh, we, we had uh, Hollywood's uh, folks as a, a major part of our practice there in Beverly Hills. Um, any, 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 anybody we would know? Yes, but uh, you know you can't you can't talk you can't, about, that you can't talk about it. Yeah, well, they're uh, not alive anymore. Well, there were some married couples that had their uh, kids that were kind of okay. messed up, and yeah, they were yeah. they were divorcing and their yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Kids, okay, you know got those, it, those kinds it. of things. So, yep. um, it, 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 we, we had quite the there's a, a fair amount of uh, uh, Orthodox and Hasidic Jewish uh, folks in. Uh, Hollywood area, and yeah. um, uh, they were part of that plan. I don't know what they did specifically in Hollywood, but um, we had a large percentage of that uh, as, as what we were serving as well. <clears throat> I actually had a, a rabbi from Jerusalem uh, come and stay for three days to kind of look over the shoulder to see what we were doing, and uh, they they didn't give him permission to be present when their kids were being worked with because it's a very small community. And if there's something wrong with your kid, you may not be able to get them married off. So um, it, yeah. they, they didn't want it known that there was anything going on. It, it was an interesting uh, era at that point with um, uh, then it was NeuroNet Neuroscience Centers uh, as the company. When I uh, went away from that, 
um, I, I uh, started to work with uh, Jack Johnstone, um, and we formed Qmetrics. Uh, ran that for a number of years. Uh, sleep Lab, three bed Sleep Lab, and and the QEG business. The uh, the Sleep Lab actually we did cost accounting. The Sleep Lab was actually losing a little bit every study. Uh, a lot of money going back and forth. Uh, you know, linen service, uh, yeah. the, the rental of the rooms, uh, the, the number of texts you had to have for hooking people up and analyzing the polished hymnographer to sign reports. Um, yeah, it, it, but there's a lot of money coming back and forth. But when you actually count it uh, out, it, you know, you're, you're selling a shirt and you're losing 50 cents on every shirt. You don't make it up by volume, you know, so. Yeah. Um, the business, we, not a hobby. Yeah, so uh, I, I basically told Jack we, we need to shut down the sleep lab because it's a loss leader. It's not and it's not bringing us few business. It's just a way to lose money. But he loved the sleep business, and and we split up the company at that point. I started uh, uh, Q Pro Worldwide with Curtis Price. Uh, ran that until he had a, a very severe rollover accident, and uh, we we gave that company to him. What, what year was this, Jay? Uh, I, I would have to look more uh, I mean, 2000, 2005-ish? 2005-ish, okay. somewhere, yep, somewhere yep. in that okay. range. Got it. Um, uh, one of my customers was, was my current CEO, uh, Ali Hashemian. He had a big practice here in the Bay Area, a few different offices. Um, Kelly Feely was his tech. Uh, we, we basically uh, were processing data for him, providing Q reports. And uh, when I broke up the company with Curtis, uh, Ali said, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, probably just start another company. And he says, well, do you need any help? You know, I can invest in. You know, would you consider doing it with me as a partner? I said, well, sure. What are we talking about? And we just talked a little bit and yeah. kind of came up with a, you know, a buy-in for him. And he, he's run the company very well. I haven't had to think about any business administration thing ever since we got together. He's a, so, so that's he's still running today. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm retired. I'm on the board still. Uh, one of the co-founders, and I'm on the board. We meet weekly for business meetings. You know, trying to figure out how to get to pay uh, Vera in Russia for her EG readings and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so, so the challenges back then, uh, keeping a business going, does it just come down to, I mean, you have business people and then you have tech people and then you have, you know, labor of love people and uh, you got to have that perfect mix or what, what, what was going on? Because it's happening today, same issues today, trying to get a practice going. Well, we didn't have any trouble getting practices going, uh, maintaining them. Yeah, it was with the difficulty. And, you know, the QEG portion of the business was always a, a, a good, you know, steady income. It supported the sleep lab for goodness sakes for a number yeah. of years. Um, uh, but we we basically ended up having you know, the, the business sh shut down with Curtis because um, it, it, his uh, all, all of the addiction centers that he was running, that was his buy-in basically went away, uh, putting along. Uh, data is on a HIPAA server. It, it's it's a smooth business, steady income, yeah. um, and you know when I think about it, pretty much everybody who's out there selling 
QG services now was a customer at one point. There's very yeah. few people who yeah. weren't uh, customers at one point that are doing QG services for people. We should get Ali on. Ali. What's that? We should get Ali on the show. Sure. Yeah, I'm sure he'd I mean, be happy to come on. He's dude. he's a he's a hoot. Okay. Uh, a good sense of humor. Uh, socially, he's a lot of fun. It, it business, he's business, but socially, he's he's a lot of yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah. Now we're at 2005, I'm guessing, Jay, and we're getting towards the end. I don't want you to run overtime. Uh, anything else in that little range there that we want to? As we're getting into the later 2000s, um, uh, my health problems are uh, becoming more and more obvious. Well, 2005 is when I met Renita, uh, which has uh, been uh, life-saving for me. Is that, I, is that her back there? Uh, <laughs> I, I, she's probably around somewhere. But, I'm waiting, um, I'm, I just, tell her I waved at her. So uh, 2005-ish, okay. Yeah. And I didn't know you had a kid. Yeah. Uh, one, my, two? My, my son, one, Vaughn, P-A-U-G-H-N. P-A-U-G-H-N, okay. He, he's a bright uh, little guy. Um, uh, when he was young, uh, he did a science fair project in, uh, what was it, like eighth grade or something, the, uh, the Bay Area Science Fair. He did a QEG project, and I didn't do it for oh, him. Oh, no kidding. Wait, uh, what year is this? How old is he? Uh, he's eighth he was eighth grade, so he was still just a little kid. Okay. Um, uh, I, I've, I've got a picture of him standing in front of the of the science fair display. Uh, if it's okay, send it to me. I'd love to. Uh... I'll I'll see what I can do to dig it yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he and his friend working together did it. They came over to the office. Then it was in Puerto Madera over in Marin. They moved from San Francisco to Marin. Um, after the merger and the closing down of the major office in San Francisco. Uh, he came over and uh, they hooked a cap on, uh, on, on him. And at that point, uh, he had mental math. Uh, he had uh, angry. Uh, he had a couple of different states, basically. And his hypothesis was that you couldn't tell the difference looking at the wiggly lines, but that the maps would look different. And I basically saw the same basic level of science when I walked into the Key Institute for Mind Brain Studies in Zurich. They had a gigantic poster session up, and it was, you know, the, the QEG, the you know, Loretta patterns on, on different emotions and, and conditions. And I laughed and I said, well, that was my kid's eighth grade science fair project, you know. So uh, the judges walking through, the, you know, if you're a judge at a science fair, Really, your first job is to see, did little Johnny do this or did little Johnny's father do this, father you know? Um, and they came by and they looked and they looked and they said, well, this is all very interesting, but where's your control group? And he looked at him and said, well, haven't you ever heard of within subject experimental design? <laughs> they looked at each other and said, I don't know. They called UC Berkeley to talk to the st statistics group and and they said, is there such a thing as a within-subject experimental design? Oh, yeah, it's an emerging area of statistics. So he won his little science fair. And they said, well, uh, the, the next big state science fair, uh, which you can go to, you're going to have to, all these little handwritten cards that are sloppy penmanship, you're going to have to have them typed out. And you, know, you have to redo the, your, your display and everything for the state science fair. And he said, 
when is it? Uh, and they gave him the date. He says, oh, no, I'm on a cruise then. He, he was a sea scout, and they had a 65-foot powerboat. And uh, uh, they, 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 had a, they were going to go up into the Delta and hang out for a, a good part of a week. So he said, no, I, I'm on a cruise. You know? So uh, <laughs> he turned it down. He's always had his priorities, you know. Uh, he, I, I think he's a little bit like me. I'm a devout hedonist, and uh, if there was something that was more fun, he he decided to go do that. And uh, as a mountain climber, uh, technical. Wait, how how old is he now? About about uh, his late thirties. Late thirties. Okay, got it. And the town he grew up in, he's the general manager for the community services district. So he kind of runs the little town he grew up in. Nice. So, Oh, I can only imagine you as an old man. Oh boy, I can't imagine me as a father either. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I built him a treehouse that was probably potentially lethal—a two-story treehouse with a, a ladder thing that you could climb up. But they could raise the ladder, and if they let go of the ladder being raised, you could come down and decapitate somebody. You know, it was it was a great fort for kids. Um, <laughs> and there was a rope swing from there over to the deck, but it went across a bunch of boulders underneath it about 10 foot down. So if you would swing over and slip, Don't you could hurt go. yourself pretty bad, you know? So, but he learned vertical really quickly when he was young. Crockett's all up and down. There's very little flat spots <laughs> in Crockett. So, um, all right, JC, you want to cut it off at 2005 and then we'll, you know. Brain Science International has been uh, rolling steady and smooth without any difficulties and I retired in 2019 2019 when I turned 70 and so brain science when did that start was that with Ali yeah it was with okay. Ali what year did that start about mid 2005 okay got it got it okay good 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 he's still running it and it's still profitable and the, the current stuff is basically in retirement. I do uh, waveform consultations with a handful of people. I, I have uh, four separate groups that do um, a couple of hours of raw EG review. One group out of Australia, uh, Barbara Minton runs a group, and uh, there's okay. a, one on, uh, there's one by run by uh, Gay Turman uh, that was on Thursdays, but they're going to switch to Monday mornings as well. So I've got four groups that review raw EEGs as groups. Some of the groups are like 30 plus people in them. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's a better efficiency for the use of time trying to hand off EEG uh, skill, the, the skill set of looking at the waveforms and kind of have an idea what you're looking at. There's a lot of waveforms that are there that are dismissed by people who are looking at them because they don't know what they are and they throw yeah. them away like they're an artifact. Um, cerebrovascular insufficiency in, a, in an elderly person or even a younger person. Um, uh, very, very brief, a couple of seconds tops, rhythmic slow, one, two, maybe three hertz in the temporal areas. Uh, cerebrovascular insufficiency is usually a cardiac rhythm disturbance, but it could also be carotid supply line problems. Um, but it's it's an insufficiency. You're not your brain is not it's being starved for oxygen for a brief period of time. So atrial fibrillation, well, Parkinson White syndrome, PVCs, PATs, cardiac rhythm disturbances. If they are an inefficient pumping mechanism, your brain can starve for a few seconds at a time. 
And you can see that as a, a, a bitemporal rhythmic slow contact. And just this last week, um, I, I saw one uh, the person uh, had analyzed it and they were wondering about something else. And I said, well, these temporal rhythmic things are cerebrovascular insufficiency. It was an 80 something year old person and uh, they, they need to have their heart checked and their, you know, cognitive uh, complaints were probably cerebrovascular insufficiency based. Um, with- so, so to a 2020 retirement, 2005, 2020, somewhere in there, a 20, 2019 retirement, and that's also about the time I sprung a leak. Uh, yeah. The surgical patch failed, and uh, which uh, basically restricted my travel. Yeah. Uh, I, I tried twice going by train because it's slow going up and slow coming down. So it's as, it's as gentle a process as you're going to get for pressure, and it was still not acceptable. I mean, yeah. having air enter your head is not a pleasant experience and uh, getting it back out is not that easy. So. Unless you're a politician. <laughs> Brain leaking, talking about EEGs online is all that I'm doing now. So it's not <laughs> nearly as dynamic as uh, running around and early days. Uh, being part of the operational structure of the societies yeah, yeah. and that sort of thing. And that concludes the Jay Gunkelman story. <laughs> we'll say that at your... Uh... Put down your epitaph, Jay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you all for watching Neuro Noodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. We'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters. We are supported by listeners and businesses just like you, like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience Incorporated, the creators of NeuroGuide, the premier EEG assessment and training software whose demo version can be downloaded from the link here. Hey, attend ANI's pre-conference workshop at the ISNR 2022 conference Wednesday, July 27th, between 8 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. The workshop will concentrate on assessment and protocol preparation using the Neuro Navigator and the Symptom Checklist, which includes cerebellar ROIs and uses SW Loretta for more precise targeting and cross-frequency coupling. Training will be introduced. And hey, if you want a coupon code, email Pete at NeuroNoodle.com. I'll hook you up. Learn more at AppliedNeuroscience.com slash NeuroGuide. Hey, Mary Tracy's Neurotraining Strategies offers a higher standard of EEG, QEG education to EEG clinicians, technicians, and neurofeedback practitioners with your convenient online BCIA and QEG certified didactic courses. Check them out at EEGstrategies.com. Hey, my media's Nexus Amplifier. Hey, full disclosure, Pete's been a customer for years, but check them out. They got a semi-dry cap coming out. You can see it live at ISNR. Say hello to great connectivity and goodbye to artifacts and paste in your client's hair. Check them out at mindmedia.com. Three things our listeners can do to help us spread the word of neurofeedback. Number one, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Number two, give us a review on whatever platform you listen to. Five stars is appreciated, but Jay Gunkelman will accept four and a half. Hey, if you have the means, please support us on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. There are different levels in which you can support us, whether you're a mom or dad or a clinician. There's even an option where you can have your own Q&A with our own Jay Gunkelman. This support help, helps us improve the quality of our content. Hey, trying to get these video edits even better, even better. 